I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I will finally actually tell you how to lay and wire track to smoothly and successfully run your trains. You've made it! We're finally ready to start laying track and running trains! It's the reason you're all here, right? Thank you for your patience. To start the process of track laying in motion, you'll need to transcribe all of your track center lines onto the layout surface. This generally shouldn't be too hard, but it helps you both confirm that you can fit all of the track you want in your space, and it will also come in use later in a section or two. The easiest way to make track center lines is with a guide. For straight pieces, this can, very simply, be a yardstick or length of spare lumber. Hell, if you have a long enough boot, that could work too. Curved sections are a little bit tougher. Even though it is time and effort consuming, what I have done for the past few years is to make radius guides. You can make one out of a poster board, large piece of cardboard, or if you want to be fancy, spare section of plywood or masonite hardboard. Sink a screw into the farthest corner of the board, then grab your yardstick. Place two binder clips or similar device onto the yardstick, one at its end and one along the side. The endward binder clip will be hooked into the screw you sunk into the board, and the sideward clip will be the guide for your pencil. Then, using a tape measure, not the markings on the yardstick, long story, measure the distance of your minimum radius from binder clip to binder clip. Then, place the yardstick on the board, hook the endward binder clip into the screw, and trace out an arc in the other binder clip across the board with your pencil. Then, increase the radius by one inch and repeat the process. Continue tracing arcs of gradually increasing radius until you run out of board. A very important step. Make sure you label the radius arc size on both sides of the arc line, both inside and out. Then, using a hobby knife for the cardboard or poster board, or a reciprocating saw for the plywood or fiber board, cut along each of the arcs that you've drawn out. Take care to make the cut as smooth and uniform as possible. In the words of my motorcycle safety program instructors, smoothly. When you're done, you should have a pile of clearly labeled arcs of various radii, a different radius on the inside and outside of each arc. When it comes time to put down the track center lines, you can test fit the curve with these radius guides and choose whichever one is best for the track arrangement you have. Then, simply run your pencil along the in or outside of your chosen radius guide to mark it down on the layout surface.
This would also be the time to include easements if you desired, as I have described in a previous episode. In far fewer words than the legendary tangent I went off on last time, describing both Renaissance calculus compensatory-based architectural practices and the differences between modern computer casing design, offset your tangent line slightly by 0.521 inches outside of your curve, and bend a stick between the tangent and the radius to get a good, smooth transition. One final note, journalistic ethics dictate I inform you that if you have an island-type layout, most commonly a 4x8, you don't actually need to make these elaborate radius guides. You can, most simply, sink a screw into the center of your curve and draw an arc around it wherever the curve ought to go, sans all the effort put into making curve guides. However, I still strongly suggest the creation of curve guides because it can only help all the other curve-related aspects of your model railroad, not the least of which being divergences of a sidetrack from the main. Once your track center lines are down, now, finally, actually, I'm not joking this time, you can start laying something. Roadbed. Roadbed most commonly comes in the form of a split cork strip, although tape-like rolls of foam are made by some manufacturers. Roadbed is used for three purposes. First, and most obviously, it provides a realistic profile for the ballast, which leads to better results in the scenery stage later. Second, it has some sound-deadening qualities. Although this is not of much concern to beginners with short trains and small pikes, once you surpass about eh, 10 to 15 cars in length, wheel noise starts to compete with sound decoders. Some people don't mind this, but others go to great lengths to install specialty sound-deadening roadbed to avoid as much of this as possible. The third, and quite possibly most important reason, is that roadbed literally smooths over imperfections in the sub-roadbed. Imagine that you had a small screw head poking out of the layout surface, or that you had a slightly sloppy joint between plywood pieces. If you laid your track directly on the sub-roadbed, these bumps would cast the track massively askew. Laying cork allows you to fix these imperfections by literally smoothing them over with a sanding block. It is infinitely easier to sand down cork to the point of smoothness than it is plywood, to say nothing of steel screws. To lay roadbed, start by grabbing a piece of cork. You will notice that it has an angled split down the middle. Rip the cork down that split into two thinner pieces such that each strip has a squared edge and a beveled edge. To lay your sub-roadbed, invert one of the pieces and run a bead of glue down its length. Now, I generally prefer liquid nails for projects. Model Railroader Magazine generally prefers DAP Alex Plus latex caulk, but let's be honest, literally any foam-safe adhesive will do, including white glue and wood glue. Once you have a bead of adhesive on the bottom of the roadbed slice, turn it right side up and lay it such that the squared edge aligns with the track centerline that you put down earlier. While the roadbed glue is drying, don't forget to run your finger over the entire length of the cork to make sure that the glue is adequately distributed underneath. Then you can hold the cork in place with a bunch of bulletin board tacks affixed every few inches with a quick tap-tap from a hammer. Then just leave the roadbed to dry overnight. There's one more note to laying roadbed, that of our good friends and complicators of everything, turnouts. Now, some manufacturers offer single-piece cork confabulations that are perfectly mirrored to the shape of their turnout, but let's be real, you do not need them. The easiest way to lay cork under a turnout is to test fit the turnout in question to the track centerline, then trace the outline of the turnout onto the layout surface. You can then lay the outer pieces of cork to match the rough outline of the turnout, but really, the only areas that actually matter are the center lines at the turnout ends. If you overestimate the curve of the turnout, you can simply cut the excess roadbed back with a hobby knife. If you underestimate it, you can fill in the overhanging portion of the turnout with a spare piece of scrap cork. 
When the outer strips have dried in place, lay one inner strip at a time by cutting the inside end of the cork into a wedge with a hobby knife to match that wedge created by the outer pieces. If there's a small gap in between the pieces, don't worry, you can fill it in with the same glue that you're using to affix the roadbed in place. Once the roadbed has sat overnight for the glue to dry, your final step is to sand the roadbed down with a foam sanding block or sandpaper. Run this over the entire length of the roadbed to make sure that it is smooth as possible and that there are no pieces sticking out. While the cork is drying, you can prepare the flex track for laying. As I mentioned in a previous episode, every length of regular rail should have a reliable electrical connection. From a beginner perspective, this means that every straight, non-turnout, non-crossing length of rail should have a reliable connection to the bus wire, through feeders, or by being soldered to an adjacent piece of track that has feeders. I will go into wiring in more detail in a moment, so don't worry about making the bus wires for now. In general, this means that every piece of track should have feeder wires. If you do have an anomalously short length of track to fit in odd space, or maybe a bunch of sectional track pieces all in a row, you can solder the rail joiners of these pieces of track to adjacent sections that do have feeder wires. Now, the old-fashioned way to wire track is to lay the track first, then drill a hole outside of the rail, feed most of the wire through the hole, and solder the wire to the outside of the rail. But this is the modern era. We can do better. What I vastly prefer, before laying the flax track or even cutting it to size, is to turn the track upside down and solder feeder wires to the underside of each rail. This makes sure that the feeder connections are entirely out of sight and it makes your railroad look much more realistic. When you invert a piece of track, you will notice that the ties are affixed to each other with thin plastic strips underneath the rail to maintain their spacing. Flex track is unique in that half of these spacers are eliminated in generally a zigzag pattern, which is what allows the track to bend. If you're using sectional track or flex track with a different spacer pattern, you will need to cut away a tie in order to make space underneath the rail for the feeder wire connection. But don't throw away the tie, we'll use it later. Before you actually solder the wires in place, there's one note to be made about the nature of flex track. As you may have already noticed, when you bend most pieces of flex track, the inside rail slides through its housings to accommodate the smaller inner radius of the curve. Now, while I am quite certain that, based on past episodes, I have it in me to go on a 15-minute expose about how this derives from or is related to Antarctic expeditions, feudal-era Japanese samurai codes, and Dutch elm disease, I could also make expedient use of both your and my time, and chalk this up to merely being a feature of geometry. What this means for you, however, is that if you solder a wire underneath the sliding rail, the rail loses its ability to slide when put into a curve because it is anchored around this feeder. To mitigate the problems this causes for cutting track to size, I very simply solder my feeder wires to one end of the flex track, usually ten or so ties from the end, and then use the other end of the track to bend round corners. Actually soldering the wires in place is something that scares many beginners, but really is not that hard. Part of the benefit of this method is that, since the feeders are underneath the rail and will be entirely out of sight when the ballast is applied later, you really can be as messy or inexperienced as you want and not need to worry about lasting problems. If you solder the feeder to the outside of the rail, however, bulky or messy globs of solder could be obnoxious or unrealistic, if not interfering with train wheels and causing derailments. To solder a feeder wire connection, start by obtaining a wire and cut it to about the length that is needed to drop from the track through the benchwork with a few extra inches to work with thereafter. Using plywood, this is about 4-5 to five inches, and using foam, it could be 6 or more. Then, using a wire snipping tool, gently make half-hearted cuts or indentations around the wire's insulation in a circle about a centimeter before the wire's end, taking care not to harm the metal wire underneath. 
When you're satisfied that you've compromised the integrity of the insulation, sink your cutters into the insulation one final time, then yank it off inwardly to desheath the wire. You could use a special wire stripping tool, but this really is more of a luxury. Twist the newly stripped wire ends to keep them together. Then, using your fingers or a pair of pliers, bend about half of this wire end into an L shape. Now, take a piece of flex track, invert it, and move to the spot that you have prepared for the feeder connection. If you have a wire brush, scrape clean the planned attachment point on the rail to remove any potential oxidation which could create the dreaded cold solder, or a soldered connection which, for some reason, is not actually electrically conductive. To solder the feeder to the rail, you should first coat both the rail and the feeder with flux. Even if you have rosin core to solder, flux is still useful because it will direct the solder to where you want it to go and will ensure a successful connection. After heating up your soldering iron, lightly touch the tip of the iron to the solder to create a not-too-big droplet of molten solder on the tip of the iron. In a process called tinning, you should pre-coat the wire with solder. Then, all you need to do is position the feeder how you want it to the underside of the rail, touch it with the soldering iron, and let the solder melt from the tinned wire onto the fluxed rail to join the two pieces together. Hold the feeder in place for five or so seconds after you have removed the iron, and then the joint should freeze. Soldering, though definitely a skill which could be improved with time, need not at all be intimidating to beginners. If you have a spare section of track, take one piece aside and practice three or four times until you get the hang of it. You also don't need anything fancy. A simple $30 soldering iron will last you your entire hobby career. The final step in soldering is to clean up. Flux can cause metal to corrode if left in an oxygenated environment. Coincidentally, our environment is oxygenated, so you must take pains to clean the soldering iron as well as your newly made solder joint. Use steel wool or a water-laden sponge to clean off any excess solder on the still-hot iron, and then dip it into a small amount of soldering iron tip cleaner, whereupon you can wipe it on the wool or sponge again. The track is probably more important, because the nickel-silver rail can corrode into a very unprototypical white-blue rust wherever there is any leftover flux. What I do is to spray the cooled joint with a detergent or anti-gumming cleaning agent and pass over it a few times with an old toothbrush. As always, be safe. Make sure to do this in a well-ventilated area, be careful around your hot iron, don't let it sit unattended or near anything flammable, and wash your hands immediately if you get flux on your skin. Okay, now that all of that is done, you can finally lay your track. To lay a piece of flex track, start by laying the feeder-attached wires where you want it to go. Mark with a sharpie on the roadbed where the feeder wires will be. Then, remove the track and drill sufficiently large holes down through the roadbed on these spots. Feed the feeder wires through the holes to the underside of the layout, and replace the track exactly how you want it to be. Then, you can mark on the railheads with a sharpie where you want to cut them to size. Actually, cutting the rails is a somewhat more complicated process, and there are several ways you can do it. The simplest way to cut a rail to size is with rail nippers. Resembling sharper and harder wire cutters, all you really need to do is go snip, snip. With eye protection, of course, because uh, nipped rail ends can achieve some very legendary velocities. However, this is a very quick and dirty way to bifurcate track, and the nipped rail ends will need attention afterwards because the tool cuts by a crushing motion. The rail cut by the smooth side of the nippers can usually be smoothed up by a few passes with a large metal file. But the rail on the wedge side of the nippers is usually a lost cause, and the nippers will need to be turned around to cut off another small chunk, followed by filing in order to make that rail usable too. Keep in mind that, when filing rails down, use a pair of pliers to hold onto the rail, not the ties, lest the metal file rip the rails out of their spikes, ruining the track. 
Now, while this is simple and very cheap, you can imagine that this won't get you very precise cuts without overcutting and then laboriously filing back to the ideal length. This isn't a problem if you have only one or two pieces of flex track to cut, but if you're trying to fit a small piece of track into a tight track arrangement, you'll definitely want a more precise method. For this purpose, you can usually find a small razor saw at most hobby shops for 10 bucks. To use a razor saw, simply mark where you want to cut your rails, and then start hacking away. It's slower, but will give you a very clean and more precise cut. In this way, razor saws are also very useful if you want to make a clean cut in an already laid piece of track, such as to electrically isolate a piece of track or to allow a precise arrangement of track over a module or domino joint. Just always be cognizant of when the razor saw is getting dull, as it will start to do more harm than good. The final and easiest way to cut track is with a rotary disc cutter or Dremel. While this can cost anywhere between $50 and $200, speaking as someone who just got my first Dremel last year, there is not an easier or higher fidelity way to cut track than this. Now obviously, this is quite an expensive and specialty piece of equipment and is hardly necessary to build a beginner layout, but it does make cutting things so easy that it should definitely be on your horizon if you're in need of such. In general, I would sum up the three methods of cutting track in the following way. If you are building a beginner layout with mostly sectional track, and you'll be using a piece of flex track here and there for maybe a siding or two, then rail nippers and a file is sufficient. If you're building a beginner layout with all flex track, or making a more complicated and dense switching layout, look at a razor saw. And if you're building a big model railroad, or one with a lot of intricate track arrangements, the Dremel is the way to go. Anyway, back to the task at hand. Once you have your track affixed to feeder wires and cut to size, you should test fit it one more time with rail joiners. If it fits satisfactorily, remove the track once more and lay a very thin layer of glue on the roadbed. The thickness of the glue is very important because you do not want it to smush over top the level of the ties. If there's too much glue, wipe it flat with a spare piece of roadbed. Then place your piece of track back in its final configuration, making sure that the rail joiners are well aligned. With the track down, use as many pushpins as is necessary to hold the track perfectly in place. Put extra emphasis on the ends of the track to make sure that the joints don't kink. Also, get down to eye level with the track and sight along its length and width to make sure that it is fairly flat and level, correcting any imperfections with the pushpins. And then let the track dry overnight. Huzzah! Your track is now laid! But you're not quite ready to run trains yet. In order to do that, you'll have to wire up your track. To begin with, you'll need to find a place to set up your DCC system. Although most DCC systems operate only through handheld throttles, thus allowing the command station to be placed anywhere out of sight underneath the layout, beginner-level DCC systems usually simplify setup by having a throttle integrated to the command station. Even if you plan on using primarily walk-around throttles later, or increasingly these days, Wi-Fi-based smartphone applications, it is still always useful to have an extra throttle readily available, and therefore to mount your DCC system accessibly. My personal favorite method for doing this is to build a small shelf with scrap plywood and mount it to the side of the layout, just below the layout surface. Bonus points if your shelf is larger than the DCC system, allowing you to use it for other things, like sorting paperwork and holding your very much the Rule G violating evening libation. Since the DCC system throttle is stationary, the shelf should be positioned near a place which, obviously, won't require much walking. For example, putting it right next to a yard ladder is probably a much better idea than in a spread out switching district, which itself is better than next to an empty stretch of mainline. If your layout is small enough, then you could also put it in an area where you have good visibility of and access to the rest of the layout, such that you might not even need walk-around throttles. 
However, don't take this too far. Way back in the day, when model railroaders had to build their own transformers, walk-around throttles didn't exist, so layouts were thusly built with central operating pits, from which almost every stretch of railroad could be reached, or at least radiated out from. However, this type of design is unrealistic and obsolete, so don't go planning literally everything around your control area. It's fine to stick your DCC system to one area and spend a year walking around the layout whenever you need to access something, because a later upgrade to tethered or wireless throttles will take care of the extra steps soon enough. Once you have your DCC system in place, pretty much the only other major thing you need to do for wiring is to run bus wires around the layout. Bus wires are the main tree trunk-like connection that connects your DCC system to all of the tracks on your layout. Take a pair of thick wires, usually 14 to 16 gauge, connect them to your DCC system, and run them around the general main line of your layout underneath the subroadbed. A short note on wire gauge. For some traditional, non-scientific, idiotic reason, the gauge of a wire is inversely proportional to its width. As in, 10-gauge wire is thicker than 20-gauge wire, so a higher number means a smaller size. Well done, past humans. Brilliant thinking there. As far as model railroading goes, smaller wires provide more resistance, so a current will dissipate faster over long distances going through small wires than large ones. I think it has something to do with the fact that wires generate their own magnetic field when given an electrical current, but I am very hesitant to fact-check this because I know I lack the self-restraint to not turn this into a biography of James Clerk Maxwell, for whom the eponymous electrical equations are named. Oh gods, I just did some fact-checking. Restraint, G4, restraint. In and out. <sighs> Anyway, this means that you want long stretches of current transmission to be in thick wires, and you want to minimize the length electricity must travel in small wires. Hence, feeder wires are small, bus is big. For routing bus wires around the layout, it doesn't have to perfectly mirror the main line above it. The only thing that matters is that all the feeder wires don't have to travel far. As such, if the main line goes around a corner, feel free to let the bus clip a cord across the arc. And if two pairs of mainline run roughly parallel to each other within a few feet, they can both be fed by the same bus wires. If your bus wire starts to exceed 1 to 200 feet in length, then your current-derived DCC signals will dissipate, and you'll want to investigate boosters. But this is generally beyond beginnerhood. If you're building a 4x8 layout and your bus wires exceed 20 feet, you're doing something very, very wrong anyway, and current dissipation is the least of your worries. Call the fire inspector, I beg of you. The final but most important note on feeders is polarity. As you'll recall, to complete the electrical circuit between the motor and the DCC system, one rail is of the in-ish polarity and one rail is of the out-ish polarity. You don't have to take my word for it. Lay any metal object across the track and, lo and behold, sparks. An electrical short will be caused when contaminating one polarity with another. To combat this on the wiring side, it is most pivotally important to keep track of which rail is getting which polarity at any given point. Because if you accidentally connect one rail to the wrong bus wire polarity, your entire railroad will short out, but without any useful sparks that could help you track back the location of the short. Back in the day, with DC power, you actually could figure out which rail had, like a battery, a positive polarity, and which had a negative. But remember, DCC actually runs on AC power, like a light bulb, hence my issues of earlier. Since, to my limited non-electrical engineering understanding, there's no true positive or negative polarity, you can, in theory, come up with any color coding or labeling convention that you want. However, since most wire pairs are sold in black and red, many modelers have informally adopted this color scheme, using the mantra of red to the rear, 
That is, the rail that is farthest away from the viewer is the one that gets connected to the red wire and vice versa, the nearer rail to the black wire. However, use common sense, a red to the rear convention may not always be the case. If you have a section of main line that doubles back in front of the viewer, obviously the red rail will momentarily become the front rail and the black rail will be in the rear. Just make sure that you keep track of which is which, such that one rail is always and universally connected to only one of the two bus wires. So, your track is laid, your feeders are dropped, your DCC system is nicely on a shelf somewhere, and your bus wires run around the layout. How do you make it all come together? The easiest and most popular way to connect feeders to bus wires is with suitcase connectors, also known as solderless quick splice connectors. These are basically small plastic cases with a metal spade and a cap on top and two channels for wires inside. Usually, you take the bus wire and snap it into the front channel, and then feed the feeder wire linearly into the rear channel. Then, using a pair of adjustable pliers, carefully but forcefully crimp down on the metal spade such that it pierces the insulation of the two wires inside, establishing an electrical connection. Then, close the door and snip off any excess feeder wire. You should be really careful when crimping down on the spade, because it's very easy to bend it to one side, which will destroy the suitcase connector. But never fear, this is easily corrected. Just pry it apart at the wedge with needle-nose pliers, get another connector, and try again. Now, as I believe I have mentioned in a listener questions episode, suitcase connectors don't have to be the only way that you can connect things. The old-fashioned way of connecting wires, a screw cap connector, can still be very useful because it allows you to connect many different wires simultaneously, which is very useful for yards and other areas with a high density of feeders. To do so, take all the wires you want connected together and strip their ends of insulation like you did for the feeder wires. Then bunch and twist all of these ends together, and then screw on a screw cap connector until you start to feel it catch and twisting those wires even more. Now, all of this leads to the most important, but thankfully the most enjoyable part of laying and wiring track. Since, as you have seen, uh, heard, laying and wiring track is prone to errors which can be terminal but easily corrected if caught early, it is imperative that you test each length of track as it is laid. Every time you have finished installing a length of track, you should take a short train over the joint and onto the track to make sure that it 1. has power, 2. has a smooth joint that won't cause derailments, and if it's a curve, 3. isn't too tight. Ideally, the test trip should be in two directions, as in once your train makes it over the track one way, turn the train around and make sure that it can go over the track the other way too. This expedition should be led by your most finicky locomotive and your two longest cars. If they can make it, then everything else will glide over the track with ease. If, however, your track fails this initial test, stop laying track and troubleshoot. One of its many beneficial services for the hobby, the National Model Road Association, or NMRA, manufactures something called a track gauge. Far from just being able to measure distance between the rails, it is actually a multifunction tool which can tell you if a car's wheels are out of gauge, if a tunnel is too narrow, if flangeways are too shallow, or numerous other features relating to reliable, derailment-free operation. So, the moment things start derailing, take a trusty NMRA gauge and inspect the cars and track. If this doesn't solve it, rip the track up and relay it with lower tolerances for kinks, bumps, curves, and grades. Trust me, even if it means changing your track plan around to accommodate the smoother track, it is way better to catch it here now rather than later. You'll be saving yourself months of anguish, and you may as well get it over with. Before I wrap up this episode, I want to bring to your attention several more general good practices for laying track. 
First, when it comes to selecting rail size, unlike the idiotic system behind wire gauge, rail height is given in code, which represents one hundredths of an inch. In HO scale, for example, the three most popular rail sizes are code 70, 83, and 100. Code 100 rail is a tad bit of a relic, stemming from the days of the ancient manufacturing technology of the 1970s, and from ease of manipulation of track when it was hand-laid. It also looks obnoxiously tall. Code 70, on the other hand, while it looks much more realistic and representative of what a scale rail height would be, is small enough that the likelihood of derailments is increased. As such, I advise a Goldilocks approach by using Code 83, which is just tall enough to be reliable for beginner lance, but not too tall as to look stupid. The same thing goes for N-Scale, with codes 40, 55, 70, and 80. Choose the middle rail sizes. I should also say that you can actually mix and match track codes if you need. Real railroads use lighter rail for spurs and heavy rail for mainlines, and many modelers replicate this pattern. For simplicity's sake, though, most beginners actually opt for sticking all with the same rail code. If you do find yourself needing to transition between rail codes, such as because, say, you accidentally bought a turnout of the wrong rail size, it's actually not that hard to do. You can buy fancy transition rail joiners, but a much, much simpler tactic is to slide a rail joiner halfway onto the larger rail, then use a pair of pliers to crimp the rest flat, and solder the shorter rail on top of that crimped rail joiner. Keep resoldering the joint until the two rails are aligned perfectly. It really is nothing that you shouldn't have already done by this point, and it's a great way to save the cost of a mispurchased item. Although this is more of a concern for track planning, now is definitely the time to make a final check for the presence of S-curves. Another common source of derailments, if you identify an S-curve while laying track, you should squeeze a short straight section and make the approaches to the curves as smooth as you can. Also, beware of hidden S-curves, like those made by opposing turnouts in a crossover. Although this should be obvious, when laying down glue for turnouts, leave a solid inch gap where the moving switch parts should be. You don't want to accidentally glue your turnout closed in one orientation. In fact, since the unobstructed operation of the turnout throw bar is so important, even if you're not planning on powering your turnout with an underlayout switch machine, you should still drill a large hole underneath the switch for two reasons. First, if you do end up powering a turnout later, it is very useful to already have the hole in place, rather than needing to get underneath the layout with a drill and guess how far up it has to go without sending a high-speed power tool through the most delicate and important part of the turnout. So, yeah. Secondly, if a small piece of ballast or dirt gets into the turnout mechanism, a hole beneath the throw bar gives a place to which the dirt could eventually escape after being worked back and forth a few times. Otherwise, it would stay there for the lifetime of the layout, continually eating away at the delicate turnout mechanism with every use. Even though most track can be affixed in place by putting a nail through ties periodically, as I have already mentioned, I muchly prefer glue. Track nails are useful if you are temporarily testing an arrangement of sectional track on plywood, and can thus keep it in a stable configuration without the need for the plastic click track ballast. But in the long run, seasonal temperature and humidity fluctuations can loosen the nail's hold, creating kinks where there are not at the time of laying. Though this should be obvious, when laying track, you should also check that your rail joiners are properly aligning the two rails, not that one rail is sitting on top of the rail joiner. And you can easily check this by running your thumbnail over each rail joint when the track has been put into place. If it catches, the joint is too rough and can cause derailments. 
I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but here's a quick primer on how to use rail joiners. They usually come in strips of about four or so, and to use one, you just clip one off with a pair of rail nippers. Looking at both ends of the rail joiner, you should see a small tab of metal left over from this clipping process. Using a pair of needle-nose pliers, make sure that these small tabs are angled slightly upwards so that they can slip in between rail and tie if needed, rather than catching the tie and squishing it backwards. If you're having trouble installing a tightly fitting piece of track, a common tactic is to slide the rail joiner entirely onto one rail, fit the piece of track into place, align the two rails, then use needle-nose pliers to slide the rail joiner halfway off of the one piece of track and onto the other. If you're having trouble fitting the rail joiner between the rail and tie, just take an X-Acto knife and snip away at the molded plastic spikes on that tie, and it should become much easier. I may have alluded to this a few times, but there is a very useful technique for ensuring kinkless curves with flex track. If you have a long stretch of somewhat tighter curve that requires at least two lengths of flex track, you can avoid the kink inevitably caused by the mid-curve joint by soldering the two pieces of flex track together ahead of time when they are straight, then bending them outward from the joint. This is an especially useful technique for hidden trackage where you want to avoid derailments as much as possible. Actually, you can do this anywhere on the layout where there will be a tight curve transition. Just be cautious of under-track feeders, which will arrest bendability at their location, so keep the feeders as near the solder joint as possible. As you're going along and cutting track, you'll start to accrue extra ties removed for track cuts or feeders. You should hold on to these and reinvest them in making the track look realistic. Using an X-Acto knife, cut away the plastic spikes on the top, and then run the tie over a file or piece of sandpaper to lessen its depth. Make sure you file away at the bottom so that all the nice cast wood grain detail at the top is preserved. Then, when you're laying track and the glue is setting, slide these spare ties underneath the rail in areas with gaps in the ties such as those left between tracks underneath rail joiners or left by the installation of feeder wires. This will make it look much more realistic rather than having obnoxious gaps of ties here and there. Penultimately, have a no-derailments policy. Numerous derailments are always frustrating, because we just want to run trains in peace. But when you're just starting out in the hobby, it is far too easy to lay track somewhat sloppily and to think that a high derailment frequency is normal, unavoidable, or a fact of life. This, in turn, may make you frustrated with the hobby as a whole. I assure you, derailments are not, nor should they ever be, normal. If one specific car regularly derails, that's one thing. Take the car aside and check its wheels and couplers with an NMRA gauge. However, if you at all have regular derailments of multiple pieces of equipment at a specific location, the fault is the track and should be corrected immediately. Even though our natural inclination is just to squeeze as much layout as we can into our layout space, diligence, moderation, and restraint will take you much farther towards having a reliable and enjoyable model railroad. Don't make curves too tight. Don't make grades too steep. Definitely don't make curves or grade transitions too sharp. But, above all, do not ever allow sharp lateral or vertical kinks in joints between track pieces. If you need to correct something like this, soldering the rail joints together to hold the joint in the preferred orientation might work. But please, don't hesitate to tear up a piece of track if it's not working out and relay it with something simpler and more reliable. Your future self will thank you for it. The last tip I have for you is to remember to have fun. This is the first truly technical aspect that you have yet encountered on your journey to build a model railroad, but it also has an ethos of excitement about it. 
On the railroad side, you are replicating the track-laying crews of yore, as they brought the railroad from one town to the next. On the hobby side, this is the moment that your benchwork turns from a random and massively overbuilt table into a small world. Enjoy yourself as you go along. Crack open a beer for every successful meter of track laid. When you're testing and wiring the track, have a small locomotive pushing a flat car or gondola filled with suitcase connectors. Pose a few figures and take a few pictures. When all the track is laid and operational, host a silver spike party. Plow along with speed and efficiency, but still savor every moment. I hope that, with this episode, I have given you the experience necessary to finally do what drew you all here in the first place. Run trains. Getting to see your railroad grow a meter or two every day is honestly one of the most exciting parts of this hobby because it represents the nascent growth of your railroad into a world of its own. I wish you all much enjoyment. If you have a question or comment, want to join the Facebook community, would like to make a donation, or would like to learn more, please visit the show's website at bgt. M-R-R-I-N-G dot org. If you like the show, please give a good review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is artist, a specially qualified technician like an engineer or mechanic. Thank you for listening, and happy modeling.